Has something the pastor said ever raised a question in your mind, and you wanted to ask a question right in the middle of a Sunday morning homily? Maybe we need to break out of our routine and rediscover how to communicate and receive the message God is seeking to get into our hearts. Turn with our study leader, Dave Wurtson, to Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15, and let's discover how they debated and argued in the synagogue to discover truth. How many of you have ever been sitting, just like you are Sunday morning right now, and the preacher like me has been speaking, and suddenly something hit your mind, and you wanted to raise your hand and ask a question. Anybody ever had that happen? How many of you have ever found yourself begin to raise your hand, and then you catch yourself? Wait a minute. This is Sunday morning. I've been trained from the time that I was just a little kid that this is declarative time. This is the time where I hear the preacher give his homily, and I'm supposed to sit passively and listen. You almost felt yourself blurting something out, and then you caught yourself and you didn't do it. Maybe, maybe we need to change our form a little bit. Maybe you need to go ahead and stand up and ask your question. In fact, in the first century, as the Apostle Paul went into Jewish synagogues, what was it like when the Apostle Paul walked into a city like Thessalonica, which, by the way, is a Greek city today. My friend Tassos Maharis, like I've often shared with you, Tassos was born, they call it Thessaloniki today. Tassos was born there, came to New York City, and he's actually gone back after he came to know Jesus. He's become an evangelist. He's actually done crusades. The mayor of Thessaloniki has welcomed Pastor Tom, and they've done evangelistic crusades. So this is a real city. But back in the first century, in the middle 50s, just a few years after Jesus died and rose again, the Apostle Paul was bringing the gospel into Greece, into Europe for the first time. And he just had an earthquake in Philippi, and the magistrates of the city, the, the ruler of the city of Philippi, which is like a Roman colony, really give strong indication, you need to leave here. So the Apostle Paul is escorted out of Philippi. He actually goes about 30 miles to the next city, and then he goes 29 and a half miles to the next city, and then he goes 35 miles to the next city. So for those of you that like riding horses, probably they rented horses, or somehow they got horses to be able to make it that far in three successive journeys in the ancient world of a 35-mile trek, not going 35 miles an hour. 35 miles was a day on a horse. So let's go to Acts chapter 17, and what I want you to wrestle with is what happened in the synagogue. And what we're going to find out, we're going to actually have Dr. Luke give us two opportunities in Acts 17 to actually watch what the Apostle Paul did with his missionary team when he began to connect with Jewish people in the synagogue. We can call it debating in the synagogue, and the idea is that there's intense questioning that leads to answers. One of the things I want to model for you today, and I want you to do it as, as moms and dads, tons of moms and dads, whenever they tell their kids something, the first question their kids raise is, why? And then how do you all respond? Because I said so. End of conversation. What I want you to realize is that if you really want to get into your kids' lives, if I want to get into your life, the question 
is the moment of real connection. In the first century, when you heard the Apostle Paul, when he was speaking in the synagogue, one thing that the kids never said was, man, that was a boring time. Because people stood up and they asked questions. They got angry. In fact, those that believed opened their hearts and joined the Apostle Paul. It was so hot that those that didn't believe got really jealous and they got mobs together and they actually threw these guys out of town. I mean, nobody in the first century church, no teenager was at our church is so boring because, man, fights and everything broke out because they were concerned about reality. See, well, Dave, what are you talking about? Well, let's look and see what the Apostle Paul did when he got to the church of Thessalonica. And one of the first things that they did in a first century Jewish service, we know this from other non-biblical sources, Jewish sources, one of the things they did is they would read the Scripture. So we not only have the Old Testament, but we have the New Testament. So let's read the New Testament Scripture that's been given to us and so we can get our feet in the ground listening to God speaking to us from his word. Look at Acts chapter 17, verse 1. When they had passed through Amphipolis, that's the next city on the Via Ignatia, which is going to Rome. It's about 29 and a half miles, 30 miles or so from Philippi. Then they went on to Apollonia. I'm not sure, maybe there weren't any synagogues in Amphipolis and Apollonia. At any rate, it says they came to Thessalonica. That's another 35 miles. And where there was a Jewish synagogue, that's the key. You want to be thinking, what are the points of connection I have in my culture? In the first century, one of the places where you could talk about spiritual things, where you could talk about a relationship with God, was in a Jewish synagogue. Jews were those that had open hearts towards God, some of them. You even had Gentiles that said, man, we don't like all this immorality among the Roman gods, and it's almost like a soap opera, and we don't like all of this worship of the emperor. We're hungry. We've got a vacuum in our hearts. So they started going to the synagogue, and that Gentile, a Roman or a Greek that was going to the Jewish synagogue, was called a God-fear. Some of you are like that today. You haven't really stepped over the line yet. You're not sure what to do with this God thing, this Jesus thing, but you feel a hunger in your heart. As you go out to the university, as you go out to your job, there are those that are just like the people in the first century. You've got people at your work that have a God sensitivity. And they might be telling you that. They'll they'll start telling you about all the yoga classes they're going to. And they're trying to get through. and, And some loved one just had a terrible disease. And they don't know how to handle how easily life can be lost and death can come. Those are all expressions where the Holy Spirit is giving you connections with people. One of the things I want us to learn through our time together on Sunday morning is that we learn how to make those connections. We learn how to be sensitive to those connections. Your connections are what you like to do. In other words, if you like horseback riding, your connection, like, like Pat, from the time I've known him years and years ago, even before he knew the Lord, he invited me to go horseback riding with him. That's the connection. And I went horseback riding all day Saturday. I think he was amazed that a Yankee from New York could actually stay vertical, you know, the way he's supposed to on the horse. But uh, that was the beginning of years and years of relationship. And now Pat's going to be heading up to the camp in Montana 
that Mary and I have often told you about and the knots have gone to, Clyde Hurst Christian Ranch, and Pat's going to be reaching out to little kids and teenagers and college students and young couples and older couples. He's going to be up there for weeks sitting on a horse, leading trail rides up and down the Boulder Valley and up on the mountains. We're all involved in that. The connection is the horse. All of you in this room have connections. Some of you are really interested in education. Some of you are really interested in business. Some of you are mechanical. You want to think about how, Holy Spirit, can you use me to make connection? That's what the Apostle Paul is doing. He didn't stop in two of the cities, stopped in Thessaloniki because there was a synagogue there, the point of connection. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So they read the Scriptures, just like we're doing now. He explained and proved that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you, is the Christ. That, that means he's the Messiah. Some of the Jews were persuaded. How did the audience respond? Some of them were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and not a few of the prominent women. But the Jews were jealous. You've got this success taking place in the synagogue. The Jewish leadership start to feel that they're losing their power. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. These are some, some ruffians that hang out in any city. They don't have a job. They're, they're not working. And they're easily persuaded to do violent things. That's what's going on. They formed a mob and they started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's home in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house, blaming Jason for hospitality, which was a common attribute in the first century world. They are defying Caesar. Boy, this is heavy duty. They're defying Caesar, saying that there is another king called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into a turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond, and they let them go. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Step one, invasion Thessaloniki. What happened? The very first thing we just read in that passage is that the Apostle Paul began to connect in the synagogue. What did he do? They had a dialogue back and forth. What was the question? Somebody tell me, what was the question that was raised in Paul's dialogue? For three Sabbaths, they would meet Friday night. All the Jewish men and the women would come. What was the question that the Apostle Paul debated with the Jewish people in the synagogue? What was it, Sarah? Is Jesus the Messiah? Okay, how did Paul prove that Jesus was the Messiah? According to your text. The meaning is in the text. What did your text just say? Did everybody agree? The question was, is Jesus the Messiah? And I want you to know, you all sitting in this room, of course he was the Messiah. Well, I got news for you. If you go up to New York City and go out there on the street corner and yell, Jesus is the Messiah, you'll have a riot. The Hasidic Jews, they don't agree that Jesus is the Messiah. It's a hot issue. It's a hot issue in our society. Your culture wants to lock the idea that Jesus is the Messiah up just in Sunday morning services. And your kids are taught from the time they're small that religion is just a private thing. You have your own little beliefs, Christian beliefs, Southern Baptist beliefs, Methodist beliefs, Bible church beliefs, good Midlothian Texas beliefs. 
that as long as you keep your religion right here Sunday morning, everything is fine. But what I just want you to know in the text was the Apostle Paul just speaking to a bunch of people that already believed Jesus was the Messiah? It was what they were raised in. It was a nice little cultural thing. No. Do you realize how you answer the question, is Jesus the Messiah, determines where you spend eternity. And your culture doesn't believe that, but you need to think, you say, Dave, how do I know that? How did Paul answer the question, Jesus is the Messiah? Some Jews stood up and said, hey, I don't believe that. Paul, how did he answer the question? He proved it from the Jewish scripture. You say, Dave, what's important about that? I want every one of you to realize, because your kids are going to ask you, why should they believe in this Jesus thing? How many of you have ever heard of Genesis through Malachi? Anybody ever heard of that? Okay. When was Genesis through Malachi completed? I find out if I taught you anything over the year. It's a scientific, absolute, objective fact that all of Genesis and the Hebrew text actually ends with 2 Chronicles. Same books, different order. But we know for sure... It's an objective fact. I don't care if your professor is an atheist. I don't care if he's an agnostic. I don't care if he's a Hindu. I don't care if he's a Buddhist. The truth of the matter is you live in a world where I know absolutely for sure Genesis through Second Chronicles, the scripture the Apostle Paul taught, was viewed as sacred writings by the Jewish people, and it was all completed at least 400 years is what the text would tell us. But we know objectively... Because we have manuscripts from Qumran that are from 150, 200 years before Christ. You can go to Jerusalem today, go to the shrine of the book, and you can see the Isaiah scroll. And it's all there. You say, well, Dave, what's so important about that? It means you don't live in a world where it's up for grabs. Maybe Jesus was Messiah, maybe he wasn't. You have your personal private beliefs, I have mine. Hey, the Jews had a revelation from God that was completed at least 150 years before Christ, I would agree with you, 400 years before Christ. But objectively, I know for sure, because there's copies, we can look at it, of all the Old Testament books long before Christ came. Now, what Paul argues is those Old Testament books said that when the Messiah came, he would suffer and he would die. So where in the Old Testament does it tell you? Do you know if you're talking to people, like you're talking to your friend, they say, why do you believe all this Jesus stuff? You say, hey, because it was predicted more than 150, 200 years before he he came, I know for sure that there was Jewish sacred holy writings that said the Messiah would suffer. Where would you take somebody? Isaiah 53. How many of you all have thought of Isaiah 53? If you didn't, you need to think of that and go back and read it this afternoon. Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all gone and done our own thing. And then it says, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That whole chapter goes on. Like it actually pictures a Jew that's trying to figure out the Messiah, and he starts out the passage at the end of Isaiah 52, where that suffering servant passage begins, and it talks about we had no idea. We thought this person was stricken by God because he faced so much abuse and so much suffering. And it actually goes on and describes how this suffering servant suffered, and then At the crucial time, Isaiah 53 goes on and says he not only suffers, he's not only cut off from the land of the living, but it also tells us that we won't get there because that's the next part. What's another passage you could use in the Old Testament that shows that the Messiah that was going to come would suffer? Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a powerful passage. Have your kids read it when they're little kids. Those are the words of Jesus on the cross. 
Those are the words in Psalm 22 that picture a crucified one, that his ribs stick out and his throat is parts. And he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And if you actually read Psalm 22 without telling anybody where it was from, if you did it in a public school, like when I was a kid, if you read it, Psalm 22, we were only allowed to read from the Old Testament. I could get in trouble for reading Psalm 22 because most of my Jewish friends wouldn't know it was from the Psalms and they would think I brought a, a Christian crucifixion passage. That's how powerful it is. Can anybody give me another passage that says the Messiah is going to suffer? Zechariah says they'll look upon the one that they pierced. Okay? You can go way back to the book of Genesis. Why in the world did God ask Abraham to sacrifice his son? That weird story right in the heart of the Abraham story. Why did God have the ultimate patriarch, the founding patriarch, take his son Isaac, who was the promised seed, take him to a mountain in Jerusalem that later became Jerusalem, and almost offer him as a sacrifice? For those of your, your loved ones, your teenagers that have literary propensities and like the way literature works, the power of that imagery, why would the Lord ever do it? In the Old Testament, it never answers the question, why in the world did God do that strange thing and go totally against all his commands? Because he tells them all the way through the Old Testament, don't sacrifice your sons. The Canaanites sacrifice your sons. The Moabites sacrifice your sons. As a Jew, you never sacrifice your sons. Because I'm the Lord of life. And then he tells their patriarch to sacrifice his oldest. Doesn't make any sense unless there's a big redemptive story that culminates in another daddy that takes his son to a mountain. And he sacrifices his son for the sins of the world. That's the big, big story. We could go on to Zechariah, one of the final 12 in the Jewish scripture, the 12 minor prophets. It says, they'll look upon the one that they pierced. It talks about the day when the Jewish people will look on the one that they pierced. In Daniel chapter 9, there's a very clear passage. In Daniel chapter 9, it's predicting about Antichrist, and it says that the people of the prince who will come, in other words, it's the fourth empire. It's the Roman Empire. It says they will cut off the Messiah. Daniel actually predicts when the Messiah would come the first time. And then he predicts that when the Messiah comes, he'll be cut off from the land of the living. All I'm illustrating to you is that from the Old Testament, they would debate, like they would open up to Daniel 9. They would open up to Isaiah 53. They would read Psalm 16, which is another passage that says that one of the Davidic sons would be put into the grave. And in the synagogue for three weeks, at least three successive Sabbath times, they argued like that back and forth. And the the implication of that is you got to decide Did the Old Testament predict that one of the sons of David would be rejected, would suffer, and would be put into the grave, and would die as a sacrifice? And the way you answer that question, like modern Orthodox Jews answer the question, no. In the first century, Paul was a Jew, trained under the best Jewish rabbi in the first century, and Paul answered, yes, he did. And then he would argue, and the way that I teach you over the years is really rooted in how Paul dealt with the Old Testament because he's the one that taught me through the Spirit. And I want you to enter into that. I want you to feel today because it will give great confidence to your faith. I'm standing before you because I believe the Old Testament taught that a son of David would come and he would suffer and die 
for the sin of the world. And I think that the Old Testament made that crystal clear at least 200 years before Jesus came. So it's not something Christians made up. And, you, and that's a powerful thing. It means that there's a Lord God that can predict that the biggest thing that he predicted was that he would send his son to the world and his son would die. But here's the really big one. Paul not only said he's the Messiah because he would suffer and die, what else did he say? This is the big one. Could your friends say, well, big deal. Lots of people have died as a martyr. Any kids ever ask you that? Yeah, I get asked that all the time. Why should I believe lots of people have died as a martyr? There were thousands of Jews that died on crosses in the first century. What's the big deal about Jesus? So Paul also said the Old Testament predicted that he would die and then he would also. Okay, turn to Psalm 16. I'm going to use this because way back in Acts 13, when we have Dr. Luke actually tell us what Paul taught in the synagogue, we saw Paul actually do this. And in chapter 13 of Acts, the apostle used Psalm chapter 2, which said that there's going to be a great conflict between the rulers of the world and the Lord's anointed. And then it says the Lord will laugh. The Lord that sits in the heaven will laugh at the opposition. And then he'll say, because I've installed my king at my right hand. And he's going to sit at my right hand until he destroys all of my enemies. You have all that in Psalm 2. And then the Apostle Paul unites that with Psalm 16. And this is a very, very powerful argument. Psalm 16 was written a thousand years before Jesus. We know for sure that it was definitely predicting this objectively because we've got manuscripts from 200 years before Jesus. Look what it says in Psalm 16. It says in verse 7, I will praise the Lord. This is a Psalm of David. David is talking. It says, I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. And then this is a really key thing. My body will also rest secure. How many of you feel that your body is secure today? You know, disease, you're going to be okay? Well, you say, yeah, but if it wasn't for what I know from Scripture, none of you have physical security, do you? So how in the world... Can King David say, I'm not uptight about my physical body dying? How can he say that? Because David himself died. In fact, the argument that they'll use, the David that wrote this psalm was put in the grave just like you are and his body rotted. But look what David says. He says, and this is why he says, he says, he says my body rests secure because you will not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your Holy One see decay. One of the greatest downers, if your kids just live for this life, then eventually they're going to go to a grave and they're going to have to look at it like we did on Memorial Day. We go to Mary's mom and dad's grave and we get the grass all done. We cut all the bushes. But when I look at that grave, you know what? Their body is just dust. And that's a real bummer. And you can put all kinds of fancy things. Well, you know, they had a great life and they live on in our memory. One of the scariest things for all of you is I'll just cease to exist, disappear, and become dust. And physically, death turns us all into dirt underneath the bed. Like the person that's cleaning the room and, you know, the little kid goes and checks and says, Mom, you haven't cleaned so well. There's somebody either coming or going under the bed. That's humbling. 
the most proud person you meet, the person that laughs at your face, it levels us all. We all die. Our body doesn't rest secure. We're put into the grave. And whether you're, big debates, if you cremate it, you just do it fast. If you put him in the box and you let it happen slowly, give it a few years, and you're all just dirt. And I am too. And that's a bummer. The big question. It makes life meaningless. It makes life hopeless. It produces depression and despair, except for an incredible thing. Look what it says. It says, it says, because you will not abandon me to the grave. There is a son of David who has not abandoned to the grave. You will not let your holy one. There is a holy one of God that the Lord God of heaven won't let death decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will lift me with joy in your presence. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. In the Old Testament, a Jewish person could read that David wrote that he would die that his body wouldn't decay in the grave, that he would be in the presence of God because the Lord would raise him up. Now, how does the argument go? The argument goes like this. King David that wrote that died and rotted. So what does that tell you? David isn't the one it's talking about. And in the Old Testament story, it keeps talking. You see, David disappoints us. We think he's the Messiah. We think he's going to bring the kingdom, and then he commits adultery and murder and he lets us down. But he wrote about another one of his sons who's going to come. And the Apostle Paul would debate in the synagogue back and forth. He would debate this issue. And he would challenge them, who is the ultimate son of David? And then Paul would have the audacity to say, I want you to know, I saw Jesus on the Damascus Road. He's that son of David. He was alive. After they hung him, he was alive after they wrapped him in those grave clothes. He was alive after they anointed his body. The stone was rolled away, and Paul would use Psalm 16 to prove to a Jewish audience, you got to decide. He's alive. What have you decided? Now, how do audiences respond to that kind of thing? I want all of you are responding in these ways. A lot of you have already opened your heart to that. And so it deeply encourages you. What happens in this dialogue back and forth as you answer the question, it brings great hope to you. Some of you say, well, I'm not so sure. i got to think it through more. Some of you guys are sitting here going, I know I was raised with that stuff, but, man, there's lots of other opinions. So you're still listening. I want all of you to know that in your heart, if you'll really open yourself to the truth, you'll hear. Like, if you really, really want to know, then I challenge you. Take what I've said this morning. I told you that you got in your lap scripture that was written long before Jesus came. And you say, God, if you're really, really there, if Jesus really did die on the cross and suffer for sins, if he really did rise again from the dead, then show me from the Old Testament and at least have the honesty and the integrity to read the Old Testament, which is the most powerful spiritual document that's ever been written with the New Testament. You should at least read it. Don't live with this religion everybody can believe what they want to. You can't. Objectively, we've got historical revelation that was predicting that there would come a great Davidic son who would die a horrible death, and then he would rise again from the dead. So some of you that are in the questioning stage need to 
keep questioning. The Apostle Paul let them question. Some of you are just saying, well, I just made an emotional decision when I was a kid. This isn't an emotional decision the Apostle Paul is talking about. He isn't. The Apostle Paul reasoned with them. He let them ask questions. And I want to create an environment. I want you to feel free to ask questions. If you wonder about the miracles, that's fine. I talk to you about the ultimate miracle there is in the Bible. Do you believe Jesus rose again from the dead? If you do, then you believe in miracles. Everything else flows from that. And it's not really irrational to believe that there's a, if there's an eternal God that out of nothing created everything, that by his word created it, it's not really that irrational to hold. He can cause his son to be born of the human being, and he can have his son suffer, and then his son can beat death and rise again from the dead. That is not an irrational thing. In fact, it's irrational to believe that the author of life could die. That's the strange one. It's not irrational. It's not that tough to believe he could come back to life again. Look what happens in Berea. It says the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace and formed a mob and started riding the city. Some of you have done that in a mild way politically. So I want you to know the Bible knows all about what you do. Over the next several months, trying to produce conflict. How many of you have heard attack ads politically? Anybody ever heard that? How many of you like attack ads? Then why do they keep doing it? You say, I don't have an idea. You need to listen to this. It's very important. Because the Bible is telling you the way human nature works. When you're really wrestling with truth, and I really want to get your attention, I produce tremendous conflict. In order to get your attention, like if I want to stop a movement, then I create a riot. Some of you are police officers, and you're in downtown Dallas, and suddenly you find out that you've had people organize. In fact, you had people that were really rich and had all kinds of resources. They organized, and they sent rioters into poor areas of Dallas to stir up trouble so that you could keep that side of the poor economy down. Those games were played in L.A. Those games are played here. As a born-again believer, I want you to understand the Word of God already talked about that. And I want you to feel the irony of it. Why are the Jews not liking Paul and Silas? Because of jealousy. They get jealous. And all of you need to understand this. I need to understand jealousy. Like when I suddenly hear, hey, a lot of people are going to another church. I get jealous. It produces great conflict. The truth of the matter is, it's one body. I want to teach you the word of God. I want you to know Jesus. I want you to know that's my total heart. Where you go and you can hear God's word really taught and you can be challenged to understand it, where you can come to the Lord Christ. I'm not in a competition to have a really good show. I want you to go where you really hear the word of God taught. I do want you to know that as you grow older and you live in a church culture that loves youth and we've decided as evangelicals we're never going to grow up, Christianity Today just wrote a whole series on that. As Americans, we decided we're going to be in youth for Christ till we die. And that's one of the things our church is wrestling with. Tremendous feelings rise up. And what I just told you is how I do it. I'm just being honest with you. I want you to grow. Today, from the depths of my heart, I'm just trying to teach you God's holy word. I'm challenging you to get to know these incredible predictions. If that doesn't connect with you and someone else does connect with you, I want you to go where you hear the Spirit of God talk. That's my whole heart. I'm not jealous at all. I love all the things the Holy Spirit's doing. Everywhere things are popping up. There's churches everywhere. 
I just was in the Northwest in, in Wyoming, four days with pastors and their wives and ministry workers that are in towns where they're, they're ridiculed and they're persecuted. And sometimes they can't get church buildings because it's the heart of country that's antagonistic to the gospel. Boy, I was humbled. In their towns, there aren't a ton of churches you can go and hear God's word opened up. They're not in towns where they're welcomed into the high school to present God's truth. Boy, we have so many things to be thankful for. And I want you to ask yourself, what about the jealousy in your heart? Because jealousy leads you to attack. And jealousy leads you to use methods that are illegitimate. I want nobody in the church family, politically, business-wise, church-wise, I don't want any of you to ever be fueled by jealousy, and I don't want you to use the tricks of separating groups, producing mob mentality. Everybody understand what I'm saying? The Apostle Paul has modeled for you. This is the biggest discussion you can have. Is Jesus the Messiah? Did Jesus die on the cross for your sins? Did Jesus rise again? That's the most powerful debate you can have. Did the Apostle Paul get angry? Did he yell and shout? Did he organize the people that joined with him to take their clubs and go and attack the mob that hoodwinked Jason? And they couldn't find Paul and Silas, so Paul got another group of people, and when they took Jason before the magistrate, did Paul come with violence and say, hey, these guys are the illegitimate ones? No. How do you beat Satan? You know how you do it? This morning, you know how you do it? You believe that Jesus is the Messiah. You believe we're following a Savior that suffered and died on the cross. You're following a Messiah that rose again from the dead. You know what? You're not going to rot in the grave. If you believe in Jesus, did you hear what I just said today? And I want the Holy Spirit to gush life upon you. Whatever you're facing, I want you to know from the depths of your soul I'm going to live secure. Even my body's secure because I'm going to get a new body and I'm going to live with Jesus forever and ever and ever. And that's the greatest news in the world. So I don't need to be jealous. I don't need to use false techniques. I don't need to use mob violence. I don't have to live in this dark world and act satanically. Instead, I can join Paul. And I want to ask you a question. How many of you know any leaders in the mob that arrested Jason? and made him pay a bond. Anybody know any of them? You ever heard of any of them? So some of you say, well, hey, Dave, the world's realistic. You've got to use media. You've got to use technique. How many of you have ever heard of the Apostle Paul? You have, haven't you? So who won? Who really knew how to use media? Who really knew what would produce a lasting moment? Do you believe that? Oh, I pray that the Holy Spirit's going to help us. Let it wash upon you today. The debate in the synagogue was over the question, who's the Messiah? His name is Jesus. The Messiah would suffer and die. Predicted in the Old Testament, Jesus suffered and died. It was predicted in the Old Testament that it wouldn't end with suffering and death. He would rise again. And therefore, with open hearts, we want to join the Bereans in the next section, where the Bereans have a more noble spirit. They opened their hearts to receive the gospel.